0: This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Into our second 100 episodes now. Episode 101, very, very exciting. Thank you again to all those who participated in episode 100, our former guests, as well as Israeli ambassador to the UN, Danny Danan. Really an incredible honor to reach that milestone. Thank you everyone for the feedback, congratulations, and so forth, and we are excited for the next episodes to come. Today we're going to feature someone who has had a major impact on my life, actually, and on the life of many of my students over the 16 or so years that i've been doing the work i have for maor at university of maryland tom steinberg was the longtime chairman of the board the lay leader of maor national and he himself has a really interesting personal narrative his own upbringing and background leading through to his time running the finances for the Tisch family who are partial owners of the New York Giants, his major hand in the construction of MetLife Stadium, which is where both the Giants and Jets play, and also will be the site of the Siam Ashas, the grand celebration marking the completion of the Talmud, the seven and a half year page a day cycle called Daf And so this is a really, really wonderful opportunity to speak with Tom. I'm releasing it today specifically because If you're listening to this in real time, which would be on December 10th or 11th of 2019, this is our annual Ma'or campaign trying to raise vital funds for the work that we do on campuses across the country. And so if you have benefited in some way from this podcast or just the spirit moves you to do so, please feel free to contribute at olamigiving.org. Slash Maor Maryland, that's a long one. Again, it's Olami Giving, O L A M I Giving. Dot Org Slash M E O R Maryland, Maor Maryland, and we'd be greatly, greatly appreciative if you're listening to this some other time after the fact and still say, Hey, I want to get in on the action, even though it's not, it's not going to be during the 36-hour matching campaign on December 10th and 11th. Nevertheless, you can always go to maormd.org slash donate, again, m-e-o-r-m-d.org slash donate, and make a contribution there. Okay, that's all for my solicitation. I don't do that often, but once a year, perhaps, can get away with that. In any event, before we jump in with today's episode, I wanted to read some listener feedback. got a really, really wonderful email from a listener who really inspired me, and I wanted to share what he wrote. This is from someone named Ari. not going to read his full name to protect his identity, but in any event, he writes like this. Hi, I've been enjoying your podcast for over a year now, and thanks to your interview with Rabbi Avraham Leventhal. Rabbi Leventhal being the feature of episode 48, released on September 17th, 2018. The director of Laman Achai, which is an amazing has said kindness organization charitable organization in Israel he says thanks to your interview with Rabbi Avram Leventhal of Laman Achai I will be running the 2020 Jerusalem Marathon full distance in support of this incredible organization I had the honor of speaking with Rabbi Leventhal in my house and was so impressed with the work he is doing to help break the cycle of poverty in Israel I am a seasoned marathoner and the Jerusalem Marathon has been on my bucket list since its inception With my daughter in Israel for her gap year, I decided that 2020 would be the year I would run the race. I wanted to thank you for introducing me to Rabbi Leventhal and to Laman Achai. Keep up the good work. What an honor to get an email like that. And anytime we can introduce people to the incredible work of so many people who we are featuring, that is the apex of accomplishment for this podcast, to bring wonderful individuals and their work to the attention of the broader Jewish public and at times people may choose to act on that, get involved, and make a difference in many people's lives. So thank you, Ari, for sharing this wonderful email with us. A reminder again that I am now available for speaking engagements. If you'd like to bring me in as part of a podcast speaking toward tales of a Jewish podcaster to a synagogue, a youth group, special interest group, and so forth, Please email Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Also, there for any comments or feedback, follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram, at Jews You Should Know spelled out fully, or Twitter Jews You Should Know with the letter U. And now, to our conversation with Moore, National co-founder, longtime chairman of the board, and by the way, recent 2019 National Gala honoree, Mr. Tom Steinberg. We are here with Tom Steinberg, a longtime businessman, philanthropist. I would call him a volunteer, but that would vastly understate uh, the role that he's played in different Jewish organizations. In particular, the Jewish organization closest to my own heart, Ma'or, where Tom was the chairman of the board for over 10 years. And we're going to get into all of that. But how are you, Tom?
1: Great. It's wonderful to be here with you today, Rabbi Koretsky.
0: Likewise, thank you so much, and uh, unlike some of the or I would say most of the interviews I do where they, the subjects are new to me in this particular case, Tom is someone that I've worked with for many, many years until very recently when he was the co-founder and, uh, and chairman of the board at maor and so I know a lot about the story, and our listening audience is in for an incredible treat today and Speaking of that treat, Tom, let's jump right in and start from the beginning. Tell us where you are from and a little bit about your early upbringing.
1: I'm from Los Altos Hills, California, which is right near Palo Alto in the heart of Silicon Valley. And when I grew up, Silicon Valley was not yet Silicon Valley, it was made up of orchards, it was a beautiful uh, valley filled with apricot orchards. We grew up with two horses, and my sister actually rode her horse to school, which is not a, or on occasion she would do that, which is it's not something I would try doing in Silicon Valley today.
0: I don't think uh, there's space today to do that in Silicon Valley, I would imagine.
1: Uh, there's still horses in Los Altos Hills, but getting past that point is pretty tough. In terms of Jewish education, uh, we grew up at a very assimilated family. Our family uh, went to synagogue, at least for the High Holy Days. Our family was a little bit involved or was involved with our synagogue, uh, Beth Am, located in Los Altos Hills. And I went to Sunday school, which was not uh, an experience that most of us embraced or engaged or looked forward to. <laughs> uh, by the time I turned, it was about the age to turn bar mitzvah, I was pretty turned off to anything Jewish. We're not particularly engaged in Judaism at that point.
0: Well, where was your family originally from? Was it a multi-generation American family? Or at what point were were there immigrants there? And, and was there more Judaism stretching back a generation or two?
1: Um, our family was multi-generation American. Both my father's family and my mother's family was from Chicago, um, but fairly assimilated in the previous generation as well. And it wasn't until many, many years later uh, when I was in my 20s that I actually uh, was shocked to discover that I had relatives going back four generations that were observant. And with that diary were some pictures that just shocked me because it seemed so far removed from anything Jewish that I had ever been exposed to before.
0: Where were those relatives located? Were they also American or?
1: Going back to four generations on my mother's side, three generations, three or four generations, would have been Poland near Bialystok. And my father's side from the Caucasus from White Russia, Kiev, and some other places.
0: Have you ever gotten a chance to go visit the the Poland side on on a mayor trip or something like that?
1: I did. I did. Yes. Um, And it's exciting to see when you grow up and it's so far removed. If you grow up in Los Altos Hills, California, and unless you work at it, um, chances are you're not going to um, immediately identify with any long-lost relatives that you would find in Bialystok, Poland.
0: <laughs> Bialystok is not quite the Los Altos of, uh, of Poland, huh? No. <laughs> no. So where you did know, you
1: go
0: um, early on? It sounds like, again, this this fairly assimilated, uh, typical American upbringing. What were your early interests? Where did you want to go? What did you want to do professionally as you were starting to find your way in the world?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I... Um, I wanted to get a good education, but not the way the parents wanted me to. The best educational alternative that they thought was available um, at that time was actually a Catholic Jesuit high school in San Jose, which was called St. Robert Bellarmine College Preparatory. And um, they had excellent athletics and excellent academics. They'd won the California State Football Championship several years. And um, with or without my blessing, off I went to St. Robert Bellarmine College Preparatory for high school, where the school was 98% Catholic. There was in my class four Jews. There were the Corinson twins, Larry Wiseman, and myself. And wouldn't you know it? As it turned out, that the president and vice president of the senior class of St. Robert. Bellarmine College Preparatory both turned out to be Jewish.
0: <laughs> that's that's good fodder for uh, some conspiracy theories, right?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I I don't think we could have mustered a conspiracy there weren't enough of us.
0: What was your experience uh, like there? Was it was it very was it a culture shock for you or did you enjoy the the time in, in that school?
1: It was a total culture shock because it was an all-male school. At that time, the majority of teachers were priests, that actually many of which wore, you know, robes. There was Catholic symbolism in every room. And while they were very respectful, many times something would be discussed of history or religious content. And they would turn to me when I was all of 14 or 15 years old, and the leader or teacher or priest would turn to me and say steinberg now you explain to the class the jewish view of this <laughs> and i would be clueless would have nothing to say and could not find a rock big enough to climb underneath
0: did that make you want to learn more about judaism or to run away from it
1: no i i am um, at the time at the time it did not make me want to have anything to do with religion, but I think in the long run what was very interesting is going to a Catholic school taught me that I was different. I was made very much aware that I am different, that I had a different identity, and whether I was aware of that or wanted to accept that or, you know, would acknowledge that, it was clear to me that I was different. And so it turned out that that was probably a very important factor later on in life. It's also interesting to note that one of the other four Jews in that class, later on in life, decided to adopt an observant lifestyle. And um, that was Larry Weisman. He went to Harvard Law School and somehow became observant later along the way. And as far as the Corinson and twins, I've lost contact. And I think it is very interesting that going to a Catholic school helped make us aware that we were different.
0: Interesting. Did are you still in touch with Larry?
1: No, <laughs> unfortunately not. If he hears this, maybe you'll be in contact.
0: All right, Larry. If you if you're if you're listening, try to reconnect with Tom. So you were in this Catholic high school, and again, sort of uh, disconnected and maybe even disillusioned, Jewishly. What were your early professional aspirations? As I recall, your father was a well known architect. Is that, is that correct?
1: That's correct. My father was a very well known architect and did many of the iconic homes and buildings in Silicon Valley in that area. And my mother was one of the first lawyers to, or lost female law students at Stanford Law School. She was there with Sandra Day O'Connor. And, um, actually went to work after law school for Santa Clara County, became the first female supervisor there, got involved in politics, and actually designed and put together the overall general plan for Santa Clara County and Silicon Valley. Uh, And they were both very involved in land use and public involvement improper use of land and my mother was very involved with stanford and stanford's relationship with the larger community in the bay area
0: interesting did they uh, get involved in any philanthropic causes was that something that they were passionate about
1: yes they were very passionate about philanthropic causes but i'd say more concerned about civic causes Hmm. of land use parks pollution My mother was involved in every environmental organization that you could think of out there, from bay conservation to air control, and my father was a constant proponent of proper land use, um, proper civic growth of of civics, of of reasoned growth, and generated a very strong sense of community responsibility.
0: Did you get the uh, architectural bug at all, or... That wasn't something you were destined for?
1: Ari, I would tell you, thank God I can't draw. Otherwise, (laughs) I would be an architect. (laughs) Ditto on that. My brother actually took over the practice and um, grew it substantially and expanded it from the Bay Area to a national firm and then to China international and became a, a firm of about 150 to 200 architects. So he really grew it and had a lot of talent. And I'd say, if I could draw, I'd probably do that. But as I could demonstrate, if this was a a visual (laughs) presentation, there's no talent whatsoever in that area.
0: So what did you want to do?
1: I was interested in business. I think an area that I was more talented in was numbers and felt like I had some capability in that area. And so when I left high school, I went to Yale for college with the idea that I would always live in Northern California because why would anybody want to live anywhere else? And I thought I'd go for four years and see the East Coast and just see how the other rest of the country lived. And I remember going to Yale and thinking, wow, there's so many Jews here. Where did all these Jews come from? I didn't even know this many Jews existed in the world. You know, they were all over the place. And that was a real shock for me. And it was interesting while I was at Yale, not once did I go to the Hillel there. Not once did I go to the kosher kitchen. And of course, there was no Moor at Yale at that point. Moor had not been created. So I was completely devoid of any Jewish content, educational or otherwise, while at Yale.
0: And yet you felt well, like was, it was very uh, Jewish, right? It sounds like you really sensed that you were around a lot of Jews, even though you weren't involved in any organized Jewish community. Yeah,
1: I was totally surrounded by Jews. Totally surrounded by Jews.
0: How did you even know that everyone was Jewish? Was it a,
1: a part of kind of the culture there? Well, there was like Cohn and Lipschitz and <laughs> Miller. And it was pretty hard to miss. And there was no small percentage of people that came from New York City and Long Island. And, you know, it was, there were a lot of Jews there that were Jewishly educated, Jewishly involved. They were, by my standards, they were really religious. And so this was really like, I mean, some of them even knew Hebrew.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Go figure. So this is really like the, the polar opposite of your high school experience, in a sense. Yeah,
1: I would say that would be absolutely true. And in fact, I can tell you, I don't think there was a single Jesuit priest that I had a conversation with at Yale the entire time I was there.
0: <laughs> you had your fill uh, in the years before. I think so. <laughs> so, and yet, nevertheless, it sounds like you still didn't yet avail yourself of those educational opportunities that may have existed there. Um, in Yale, I guess it was more of a career-focused kind of mindset At what point did you start to then say okay i'm you know i'm going i want to learn a little bit more about this judaism that i'm being surrounded by and that's in my past
1: yeah my path was unusual a little different than most people um while at yale i didn't have any interest in judaism per se i was curious i wanted to learn i wanted to be educated i took as broad a a range of curriculum as I could take and studied everything from ethnomusicology to nuclear physics. And I was curious and I wanted to learn. So, what happened is after I graduated from Yale um, and I studied economics and I had been accepted to Stanford to go to business school, I had a wonderful friend who encouraged me to go this direction and do the, a particular thing. I felt like and his name was Stephen Dinkelspiel. And Steven, who was a college roommate, had taken a trip around the world following college. And I thought about it, and I thought, my gosh, I'm gonna go to business school and I'm gonna graduate and probably end up getting a job working for a financial institution. And I thought, you know, I'm very competitive and I'm gonna wanna do well in my job. And I'm on after working there, I'm going to want to become at least a vice president wherever I am. And then if I stay at that same place, I'll want to become a partner. And I'll work really, really hard and long hours to do that. And then I'll work even harder because I know myself. I'll want to be a senior partner and accomplish. And I'll work really, really, really hard. And then it's going to all be over and I'm going to die. And I thought, what a boring life. To go from studying economics to business school to a financial institution and to work and work and work and then finally die just didn't sound very exhilarating. And I thought about it, and I had this conversation with my cousin, Rob Kruger from Highland Park, Illinois. And I told him this, and my cousin Rob said, I can't believe you're saying that because I'm supposed to go to medical school. And I know myself, and I'm gonna work hard in medical school, and then I'm gonna to have to pick an internship, and then I'm gonna have a specialty, and I'll work in that specialty, and I'm gonna join a medical group, and I'm gonna work and work and work and work, and I'm gonna to die too. How boring is that? So we thought about it, and we were really depressed. Who wants to live? thinking i'm going to live a boring life just to die and i said to rob i've got an idea i heard that you can buy an airline ticket for twenty three hundred dollars that's good for one year that you can go around the world it involves 40 airlines and you can go east or you can go west but you can't backtrack and you can go as long in any route you want until you've made it one time around the world. And I said to Rob, what do you think? Let's do it. And you know what he said? I want to do it. And so we decided we're going to do that. And off we went. We purchased the tickets. Rob had a month off before me. So he flew from Chicago from somewhere. From Chicago, he flew to somewhere, I think L.A., And from L.A. to somewhere else until he finally ended up uh, coast of Asia on this big, huge island. And he learned where he was that the natives that lived farther in the hinterlands were very interested in canned goods. And he loaded up on two duffel bags of canned goods. And he took them and traded them to go farther and farther upriver until finally two weeks later, he was hunting wild boar with dogs and spears, having the time of his life. <laughs> later on, he told me that this was much, much better and more interesting than medical
0: school. <laughs> I was going to say, not, not what you see every day in Highland Park, Illinois.
1: <laughs> no. So that's what he was doing. And meanwhile, I finished up what I was doing. And I flew from San Francisco to Honolulu, to Hong Kong, to Singapore. And we had made up that we would meet on a certain date in Singapore. And we finally got there, we met, we saw each other, ran and hugged each other. And we couldn't believe it. We had a whole year to travel together. And we were so excited. And there was only one thing. When I looked at Rob, I said, You know, Rob, you don't look so good. And he said, I don't feel so good. And the problem was that he had been eating wild boar for about a month. <laughs> and his Highland <laughs> Park, Illinois stomach wasn't used to that. And he was very ill. We traveled from Singapore to Bangkok. And in Bangkok, I took him to an American doctor as he got sicker and sicker. And the doctor said to me, you got to send your cousin home. He's really ill. And I said, well, wait a minute. We've got this trip, 40 airlines, one year. And the doctor said, no, you don't understand. You got to send him home right away. And so we made arrangements. And Rob went home and flew from Bangkok to India to somewhere to somewhere to somewhere, but got back to Chicago. And then I realized that I was alone in Bangkok. And if you can imagine, this was hard for a lot of the younger listeners to appreciate, but that was at a time that there was no cell phones, no connectivity, nothing, no internet. If you can imagine not knowing anyone within 8,000 miles and no one within 8,000 miles knowing you, It's an awesome experience, extraordinary freedom, complete anonymity. You can do anything you want and no one knows. And I had a ticket for a year to go anywhere in the world alone. And that was the situation I was faced with. So here I was, 24 years old at that point, and I had an opportunity to go anywhere and I traveled everywhere. I went into above Thailand or north of Thailand into what was then Siam. I went into Laos. I traveled through the Himalayas. I went through India, through the deserts of India, a little of that by elephant. I really tried to experience everything I could and to see every culture that I could. And it was a lot different than Los Altos Hills, California. And I got exposed to things that would have been unimaginable if I had stayed in the United States. Examples would, you know, as a Jew that studies the Talmud, some of the Talmud identifies issues of Zora, of idol worship. Idol worship seems pretty foreign to the Western mind. Well, I wandered in um, to a a city when I was passed in the jungles north of Thailand. And they were doing a ceremony that was a sacrifice to the harvest god. And they were taking animals and sacrificing it to the harvest god. And I was in a country where I was pretty much the only white man. was concerned that they not sacrifice me to the Harvest God. But it was pretty extraordinary to see what they did and what their beliefs were. And there are parts of that area of Asia that are at least several hundred years behind us. Very, very primitive polytheistic systems. I also had the opportunity to learn mantra and meditation in uh, nepal and in the himalayas and had a chance to learn a bit a little bit about what that process was like and i was invited to go to Mumbai and study buddhism and to learn about some of the tenets of buddhism and it was a very expansive wonderful exposure to how many other thought systems exist in this, in this planet What was interesting is that as I traveled, I learned and I was curious, but none of it necessarily identified with my inner self where I felt, aha, this is where I belong. And so when I continued to travel west and eventually make my way past India and to come to Israel, when I was approached or had the opportunity when I was at the Kotel in Jerusalem, and when it was asked, do you want to sit in a class on Jewish philosophy? I said, sure, why not? Because I've learned about Buddhism, I've learned about mantra, I've learned about polytheistic systems, and I've learned about just primitive who knows what. So it was really interesting. I was introduced to a class in something called Ethics of the Father, Avos. The person teaching that was a rabbi Tom Meyer, and he had an extraordinary way of introducing the class or introducing Ethics of the Fathers. He said that the leader of the Jewish people in each generation would record the greatest piece of wisdom that his generation had to offer up to the Jewish people, and that Ethics of the Fathers was a collection of the greatest wisdoms of each generation that was handed down to the Jewish people. And when I heard that, it really struck a bell because it hit me that everywhere else in the world I had been, that it was always the same story. One nation was interested in conquering another nation. And if the offending nation was successful, they just absorbed the other nation. And if they lost, the other nation would absorb them. But it was all about expansion and power and conquering. And I realized that the Jewish people were totally different. The Jewish people were not interested in conquering other nations. The Jewish people were interested in conquering wisdom. And that was fascinating to me because I too wanted to learn wisdom. And I thought, well, maybe I'll stay here and see if I can learn a little wisdom. And so I traveled every morning and did my tours, but I would come back the next day to the Perky Avos class to see what the next generation had to offer up as the best piece of wisdom that they could give to the Jewish people. And after two weeks, I had collected about 14 great wisdoms. And I thought, wow, this is fabulous. And I decided to stay a little longer and a little longer. And after about a month, I decided, wow, this would be fabulous. I think instead of going to Stanford Business School, I think I should stay here and study Jewish wisdom. And that's what really got me interested.
0: Now, just to pause there, I want to ask you, was Israel always on your plan, on your itinerary? Had it been something that you'd grown up with any consciousness about? Um, did you and Rob talk about that that was going to be one of your destinations? How did that fit into your initial plan?
1: Yeah, that my initial plans was stopped in Israel and spend maybe two weeks in Israel. If I could spend two weeks in Thailand, I could certainly spend two weeks in Israel. And um I had some names of people that knew people that knew people that knew my parents. And so I had a couple people to look up. Oh, I should just mention when I was in Asia, I was spending about $3 a day on my budget. So when I got to Israel, you know, it became much more expensive. I was spending more five or $6. I got a room in the Arab quarter of the old city because it was pretty cheap. And um, so, yeah, I had planned to go to Israel, but I never planned to do something like study Torah.
0: And so did your desire to do that kind of derail your your future plans? How did that all fit into where you were at? Well,
1: this is what happened. And again, I have to take the listener back to a different era where international travel was different. Telephone service was completely different. Very difficult to make international calls. To that part of the world and especially Asia, and I hadn't spoken to my parents for the better part of six months. I decided as a good son that I better check in with my parents. And not only that, I thought it was the right thing to inform them of what I was thinking. And I tracked down my parents who were on vacation in Lake Tahoe, California. And when my mother answered the phone, she screamed and said, Tom, you're alive she hadn't heard from me for six months. All she knew is I was somewhere between Karachi and you know, maybe Morocco. And so when she heard from me, she wanted to just know I was okay. And I said, mom, how, are you, how long are you and dad gonna be on vacation? They said about a week. And I said, great, don't go anywhere. I'm coming to speak to you and dad about something. And I blew my airplane ticket I flew from Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv to JFK to Reno and went to Lake Tahoe to tell my parents that it was my intention that instead of going to Stanford Business School, I decided to go to something called yeshiva. Well, my parents had never heard of the word yeshiva before. So the first question was, well, what is a yeshiva? And based on my now one month of extended Jewish education, I explained to my parents that a Yeshiva is a place where you learn about wisdom. And as you can imagine, that didn't go over <laughs> really. They weren't good.
0: thrilled to replace uh, not Stanford with thrilled.
1: <laughs> No, not thrilled. It's every parent's nightmare to be in that situation and every child's nightmare to be in that situation. We spent five days discussing which place I should go to. And there was a lot of resistance. And finally, at the end of the fifth day, my father, who's very, very smart, when I thought he was finally seeing the light, said to me, you know, Tom, we're cashing in our chips. For 24 years, we have fed you, we have clothed you, we've educated you. and..." We are never going to ask anything of you again, but we're asking you not to go to yeshiva and instead go to business school. And that left me in a terrible dilemma. What do you say? Do you say, I have gratitude to my parents? They've done so much for me. They've done this all for me for all these years. Don't I owe it? to them to respect that kind of wish maybe they know more than I do maybe they have more life experience or do you say they have their life and I have mine they live their life I live mine this is what's really important this is what I think is the best thing for me and I've got to be my own person what do you do So that was my dilemma, and I decided to honor my parents' wishes and go to business school. I remember studying advanced macroeconomics, international finance, and the killer of all killers. Oh, I did different types of modeling, and then, of course, cost accounting, and I thought, oh my gosh. I could be in Jerusalem learning about the soul and its infinite connection to the worlds above. Or here I am studying cost accounting.
0: <laughs> talk about a contrast, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was a real talk context. about making
0: an accounting, you know, so.
1: <laughs> Anyhow, what that did, and Stanford Business School, of course, was a fabulous experience with fabulous people, but it did not fulfill. I mean, it was fabulously growthful and interesting in terms of learning about finance and venture and great people and, and gave a foundation for my future business world. But it didn't satisfy the soul's desire to learn more on a spiritual plane of what was really important and motivating me internally. And so I decided when I'd finished business school that I would go back to Israel and try to see what was motivating me and what, what that experience had really been about. And it's when I went and I finished business school and I was accepted at Goldman Sachs in New York for investment banking, following business school to work in New York that I had made up with them that I wouldn't start for about a half a year. And I went back to Israel. And that's when I met Rabbi Errol Gershenfeld, who's now running both Mahon Shlomo and Machon Yaakov and Mehor. And I was just awed by his knowledge and his wisdom and awed by how much he knew about how to navigate the conflicts in the world and his ability to take the Talmud and ancient Jewish wisdom and convert that to extraordinary practical. Knowledge that it would help me work through all aspects of my life. So that's that's how I got interested.
0: Incredible! And so now you went, you did this six months, and then you went back to Goldman Sachs and worked there for a while. Finance.
1: I went. I worked um, in investment banking for four years, and I worked with a specialty in real estate. I remember my first year at Goldman Sachs, I traveled to twenty six states and over 100,000 miles, and um, I worked my brains off, and I learned a tremendous amount. But what I tried to do in the mornings before I started work was to, even if it was for five or ten minutes, to learn some piece of Torah, something. And what that meant is that no matter what happened in the course of the day, I would have done something that was spiritually Fulfilling and meaningful as a balance to everything else I was doing during the day. The other thing that I tried to do, or that I did do, and it was a very concerted effort because there was no one else in investment banking doing this at that time, is I kept Shabbos. And that meant that no matter how hard I worked, I was never more than six days away from Shabbos and an opportunity to stop. Doing discounted cash flow analysis or public records analysis, and had a chance to think about what am I doing with my life? What's important? What's my goal? Am I getting closer to that goal? And a chance to reevaluate what am I doing and am I on target? And so, somewhere between going and visiting families, and these families were incredibly. Generous and open and hospitable, you know, and whether it was eating well or catching up on sleep or hearing people sing or talking about really meaningful spiritual things, it was a great counter to, or antidote to all of the other 144 hours a week I was spending at Goldman Sachs. And that was the balance Shabbos for one day and six days of intent intense work at Goldman.
0: Now, eventually, as far as I know, you decided to take another turn back East and return to Israel at some point. Am I, am I right?
1: Yeah. I was a Goldman for four years. And then uh, along the way, I married my wife, Shandal. and uh, Shandel was from a modern Orthodox background and she had kept Shabbos all her life, had kept Kosher her life, and we had a fabulous relationship, except for one thing, something that no self-respecting male can really live with, and that is that when it came to Judaism, she knew more than I did about everything. She just knew everything, and because I'd never really had any kind of formal Jewish education, I was at a loss and we decided that for both our sakes it would make sense at some point to go back to Jerusalem and Shanael was a litigator she had her own law practice and she put her law practice on hold and I informed Goldman that I wanted to take a one year break and we decided that we would return to Israel and go learn and it was very fascinating because at that time Goldman Sachs was relatively small. I think there were maybe between five and 10,000 employees at the time I left Goldman. And they would send around a memo that would say, you know, we regret to announce that somebody's leaving. And a typical memo might sound like we regret to announce that Ari Koretsky is leaving the firm of Goldman Sachs. He worked in our private placement department where he was particularly Helpful in the lead role in the well known Ford Motor Company transaction. He will be going to JP Morgan where we wish him well, signed the management committee. When my memo came out, it looked a little bit different and it said, We regret to announce that Tom Steinberg is leaving the firm of Goldman Sachs. He was going with his wife and newborn twins to Jerusalem where he will be studying at the Mahon Shlomo Institute of Talmudic Studies. We wish Tom well in his study of the Torah, signed the management committee. (laughs) Well, when that happened, my phone started ringing off the hook. No one could understand what I was doing. The first phone call came in from Japan. They just did not understand it. um, But we went, and I remember flying an El Al with our seven-week-old twins to Israel to go study Torah in Jerusalem. And it was a fabulous, fabulous year. In fact, it was so fabulous that we decided to stay a second year. And um, that was the first opportunity that I had to really catch up and have an opportunity to learn a little bit more serious basis.
0: Now was Goldman holding your job or had you kind of relinquished that role?
1: Um, we agreed only at that point, only three people had ever taken a leave of absence from Goldman. Two of them went to work in the treasury department for the US government. And it took management committee approval of the top 12 partners of Goldman to do something like that. So we agreed informally that I loved Goldman, Goldman loved me and that we would talk in a year. And then of course, at the end of the year, when I decided to extend my stay in Israel for a year, we agreed to talk after that. And subsequently I did not come back to Goldman as an employee, but we maintained a very good relationship. And I think I turned out to be much more valuable to Goldman as a client than I ever could have been as an employee. So it worked out very well for both sides.
0: So now ultimately, from what I know, at least at some point, you ended up working with the very well-known Tish family and working in their family office and in particular had a hand, a major hand, in an extremely exciting project in the construction of the planning and construction of MetLife Stadium, uh, which is where both the Jets and Giants play. How many years down the line was that? And tell us a little bit about your shift to a, a whole new role.
1: Sure. When I came back from Israel, after um, a couple of different shorter term things, I decided I needed a real job. And I went and I interviewed with Larry Tisch and Bob Tisch, who were the two patriarchs of the Tisch family. And it was very interesting because when I was interviewed by Larry Tisch who was, you know, then considered one of the great investors of the 20th century, very close to Warren Buffett. And he looked at my resume, and it was not a typical interview. And he said, okay, Tom, I see here you went to Yale and studied economics and Stanford Business School, and you're vice president at Goldman Sachs. And then it says you went to the Mahon Shlomo Institute of Talmudic Studies? He said, most partners or most people I know who might have been on partnership at at Goldman would not go to the uh, Mahon Shlomo Institute of Talmudic Studies. Tell me about that. And I tried to kind of steer away from that because I didn't know what he would do with it. And I didn't think it would help me uh, in my interview. And we had a two-hour interview, but we spent 90 minutes talking about why I left Goldman to go study in yeshiva. And, um, it was very interesting because that was his focus. He wanted to know all about that. And about 10 years later, his youngest son, Tommy Tish mentioned to me, he said, you know, when there's a wealthy family, the most important, and Tommy asked me in the context of why they hired me. Was Tommy said the most important thing when you have a senior manager that you're entrusting your family, part of your family wealth to, is that you trust that person. And he said, "We figured if you left Goldman Sachs to go study ethics, then you should be somebody that we could trust." So I was started off at Goldman and ended up—I mean—with the with the Tishas—and ended up being there for 22 years. I would. Eventually became president of Tisch Family Interest, where I saw the, oversaw the investments for Bob Tisch's family across all asset classes and for real estate and some other projects for the families of Larry Tisch and his children. And Bob in 1991 actually purchased a 50% interest in the New York Giants at that point, 50% was for $75 million. So that's turned out to be a pretty good investment. Yeah, for pretty good
0: ROI there, wow.
1: Um, and one of my responsibilities was to be, oversee the financial aspects of the Giants investment as it related to the family. The Giants were playing in what was then Giants Stadium. The Jets were playing in Giants Stadium, which they hated. The stepsister, because all yeah. all <laughs> their home games yeah. for the Jets were at Giant Stadium. In addition, the economics of the stadium were very poor for the teams. And the stadium was owned by the New Jersey Sports and Exposition Authority that had no incentive to really grow the revenues at the stadium. The teams got very little of the revenues, the expenses were out of control, and there was very little input on the part of the teams on the operations or profitability of the stadium. The state had made a promise to the Giants in the process of renewing their lease That they would keep the stadium at a state of the art equivalent to other stadiums in the NFL. But unknown to the state was that there would be explosions of new stadiums in the NFL. And every year, new stadiums were built that had new sound systems, new marketing systems, all sorts of LED screens everywhere, new weight rooms, new locker rooms. And it was an obligation of the state to keep the giant stadium up to date every year, and they were running into obligations that ran into the hundreds of millions of dollars. And so Bob and I discussed, you know, what could be done, and we thought the best thing would be if there was a way to actually relieve the state of its obligations and create a new stadium that would be owned by the owners of the team, and that Article 17 became the avenue by which we were able to do that and negotiate that the state would give us a 99-year lease on the land for which we would pay, and that the Giants would completely privately fund their own stadium. Now at the same time, the Jets had spent an enormous amount of money to create their own stadium and tried to get a stadium on the west side of Manhattan. And very surprisingly to them, and after expenses of tens of millions of dollars, that was rejected and the Jets had nowhere to play. And we kind of bit our tongues and invited the Jets to come join us in a joint stadium, which was a very unnatural act because if you think about it, the Jets and the Giants, Their fans don't particularly love and respect one another. I think that's (laughs) safe. And the teams don't naturally want to bind. They're absolute competitors. But the stadium that we were going to build was going to be a $1.7 billion stadium. So there was $850 million of incentive to work together. And that's what we did, is we worked together to create a joint team stadium that would be in the biggest market in the United States, in the most lucrative sport, football, and that we would privately fund that and not depend on any public financing. And that's what we set out to do, and that was what ended up being MetLife Stadium.
0: How long did the project take?
1: About 12 years from conception to opening.
0: Incredible, 12 years working on it non-stop basically or
1: well there were a few other responsibilities also at the tissues at that same time <laughs> but there was a lot of focus um and it ebbed and flowed and we worked i believe through four new jersey governors and administrations that all had different ideas everything from you know a covered dome that would have cost us 350 million dollars to all sorts of government restrictions and um, other things. But we navigated through that, and it turned out to be a project that I think everybody feels pretty good about.
0: For those familiar, there's a major Jewish event every seven and a half years that takes place at MetLife Stadium, at at least did take place uh, almost seven and a half years ago and is coming up again this January, and that's the celebration of the completion of the Talmud. Is that something you could have ever imagined would have been the recipient of of your efforts going back all those years?
1: No, but I couldn't be more pleased because the study of Talmud is a fabulous activity. And when you think about it, 90,000 people coming together to celebrate the completion of the study of the entire Talmud which is studied by hundreds of thousands of people around the world every day. When you're there and you experience 90,000 people celebrating that together, it's an extraordinary feeling. It may be the largest collection of Jews since the second temple era. And the fact that they come together to celebrate the study of Torah is just awesome. So yes, it's a fabulous feeling. and. Um, Extremely gratifying that it takes place at NetLive Stadium.
0: Tom, tell us a little bit about some of the causes and interests you've gotten involved with. Obviously, at some point you joined together with your erstwhile longtime teacher and mentor, Rabbi Gershenfeld, and formulated a Ma'or, which is you know very close to my art, of course, where I've spent my entire career. How did that come about for you and what was kind of your path through the world of philanthropy and volunteerism?
1: Well, I think the really, the true motivating factor is that because I came to learn about Torah as an adult and not so much as a child and felt that there was something that's so enriching and meaningful and helpful to living a fulfilled life that when you have that type of experience, you want to share it with other people. And I feel like the Torah has so much to offer. The Torah is immense and not all of it is for everybody, but there's something in it for everyone. And so when you have that kind of experience where you feel, wow, I'm learning about what's important how to build relationships what it means to have a family what judaism says about what's important if you want to be happy or healthy or growthful or fulfilled then when you experience that and you love it you want to share it with other people and so i felt like i hadn't had that experience as a younger person who knows what would have happened if I never got that experience and I wanted to share it with others. And Rabbi Gershenfeld from his vantage point has been totally dedicated for decades to sharing as a master teacher, what wisdom there is in the Torah and how that can lift somebody's life. And so we had been in contact There were certain programs that we were involved in together. And in 2005, when I and my family relocated to Jerusalem, and I was still working for the Tishas and commuting to Madison Avenue every other week, which is a whole other story. But I moved to Jerusalem, and Rabbi Gershenfeld asked me, Would I be interested in helping him a little bit in developing? a new organization called Ma'or, which would be involved in helping teach Judaism in a sophisticated way on college campuses. And I thought, of course. And the level of Torah knowledge on college campuses, you know, Rabbi Koretsky, is very mixed. There are some people that come in with a great education and have been studying their whole life, and there's other people that may not even know that they are Jewish. And there are actually scores of students that through Ma'or have discovered that they are Jewish. And um, so that was a great opportunity. And we looked at, well, where does it make sense to go if you have limited resources? So we decided, well, we wanna go to campuses where students are intellectually curious and academically capable, where there's a critical number of Jews, um, like University of Maryland where you are, where there's thousands of Jews, and also where there's a strong Jewish community around that campus that can support that kind of activity. And we started with four campuses, which included University of Maryland, and Penn, and Binghamton, and Rutgers. And we found that students were so thirsty, and so wanted to learn, they were learning chemistry in a sophisticated way, they were learning literature in a sophisticated way, why shouldn't they learn Judaism in a sophisticated way? And that was the start of Maor, and it has grown from four campuses to 21 campuses. And we now have about 4,000 students a year that go through our programming, and have had about 25,000 students historically gone through the entire program.
0: And Tom, for those who are listening, you know people might picture someone who's involved as a lay leader, as you know maybe a figurehead or someone just lending their their charitable support, or you know involved in some loose kind of way. But from a, uh, the bird's eye view that I've had over the years, you were far, far more than that and you were deeply involved in the organization at, at every level and at every stage. How did that incredibly consuming and, and, and involved investment, personal investment, change or, or shape you?
1: Well, I got less sleep, Ari. <laughs> That's one. I would say beyond that, it shaped me because it's so fascinating to see young Jewish people that really want to grow, they want meaning, they want to have purpose, and want to live a really good life and contribute to the world. And people that have had no exposure to Torah, Because look, the Talmud is written in Aramaic, and the Torah is written in Hebrew. And the homeland of the Jews is a long ways away from Los Altos, California. But when people are properly exposed and see what the Torah has to offer and how its principles are timeless, and it can help them in their everyday relationships right in their dorm room, it's amazing to see how people react and relate to it. And that is such an inspirational thing for all of us. And it's a motivator. And the more we saw how people responded to it, the more we wanted to get involved. And so more just kind of grew and grew and grew. Um, It shaped my life and my family's life to see these people, who have really developed and decided to get involved in Jewish community life, involved with their federations, Jewish organizations, Jewish philanthropy, Israel advocacy, to take on BDS, and to further their commitment to learn more and become more educated about Judaism. So my experience is kind of like you know the expression, I bet you can't eat just one. When you learn Torah, if you learn it properly, you want more, and hopefully it turns into a lifelong process.
0: Tom, what are you doing today that you've, as you alluded to, you moved to Jerusalem a number of years ago. You were commuting back and forth to Tish for many years and ultimately moved on from that. And you've, although uh, maintained a very close affinity to, Uh, Mayor, you have stepped down as the active chairman after many, many years of that. So where are you today? What are you doing professionally and philanthropically in terms of your own time and and so forth?
1: Professionally, um, I have a small investment firm called TS Partners, where I invest in real estate and private equity and ventures with a dozen or so families that are interested in investing with me in various projects. In terms of time, I'm trying to spend more time with my family, which has expanded since the time the Moor started. And educationally, you know, you've got to believe in your product. And if I tell other people that it's a good thing to learn Torah, I gotta do that for myself. And I finally take some time and I try to increase a little bit my own study of the Torah and, and teaching and with some students and be involved with some students and and try to be a little bit of a mentor and develop some students. And by the time I do that, it's already been a full day.
0: <laughs> well, you I can I can say you certainly deserve a little bit of that personal, you know, attention to yourself after so many years of giving and giving to others. And It's really uh, an honor to hear your incredible journey, your story, which is a worldwide adventure and a a spiritual adventure, a a business adventure, and really, I think, has something for many, many people from all walks of life to relate to and, and draw inspiration from. So thank you so much for sharing your life story with all of us and wishing you all the best and strength as you move forward.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to spend the time with you. Everything good to you.
0: This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that, and you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.